The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl G., Jenny Frumer, John Janetta, and Linda Schub. This is your forum for exploring and discussing challenges that are faced by public and nonprofit leaders. And now, Leadership Matters. Good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in to Leadership Matters, informing leaders, inspiring solutions. I'm John Janetta, and I bring you greetings from Heartland Family Service in Omaha, Nebraska, and Council Bluffs, Iowa, and I'll be one of your hosts for the hour. And today we're going to be talking about when change is mandatory. And to help us have this conversation, we have with us today my awesome co-host, Jenny Frumer, who's the Associate Executive Director of Alpert Jewish Family and Children's Service in West Palm Beach, Florida. Hello, Jenny. Hi. It's great to be here with you again. Yeah, thanks. And our special guest for today, Joni Poor, who's the Director of Homeless Services at Heartland Family Service. Hello, Joni. Hello. Thank you. You bet. And Rachel Olive, who's the Director of Metro Home Base, um, also in Omaha, Nebraska. Welcome, Rachel. Hello. And so uh, we'll be learning more about what Metro Home Base is. In fact, that's sort of the, the main topic of our conversation today. But to our listening audience, we invite you to join in, in our conversation by calling 1-866-472-5790. If you have any questions, you can also email by clicking on the email host button under our show's landing page right under the bookmark show link. So thank you again so much for joining our show today, uh, Joni and Rachel. I think it's always helpful uh, for our show um, to have our um, listeners right off the beat bat sort of know a little bit more about you. So maybe um, each of you could just take a little bit and tell us, um, you know, how did you start in this business and how did you end up today where you're um, helping individuals and families who are experiencing a housing crisis? Certainly. Um, sure. This is, uh, well, as you said, I'm Joni Poor, and I oversee homeless services for Heartland Family Service in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I started in social service work in uh, 1999, serving in a youth shelter here in the Omaha area. So I guess in some ways I've sort of always been involved in um, homeless services, though, depending on which population you're serving, it's sort of approached differently. Certainly from youth services, it's approached more from a child welfare perspective and less a homeless service perspective. And from from there, um, uh, transitioned on to um, a social service organization in Southwest Iowa, um, uh, where uh, my primary responsibilities were to license uh, foster homes and adoptive homes. And then um, uh, I moved on um, uh, in 2004 to Heartland Family Service and our homeless service programs. And um, at that time, we had one homeless service program that um, was serving our Pottawatomie County area in southwest Iowa. And um, today we have nine different homeless service programs that range from, you know, street outreach and transitional housing all the way to permanent supportive housing, really providing our own continuum of care within the organization, but certainly in partnership with the um, other community providers uh, in our area as well. And Rachel, how about you? Um, I am Rachel Olive, and I got started back in 2002 working um, with child welfare, being a family support worker. Um, I made my way through that just into the DV domestic violence world where I worked with um, women that were transitioning out of 
shelters and trying to get their lives back together. Um, from there, I just really um, delved into community organizing and really understanding what that meant, what system change looked like. And so a lot of my career has been spent doing that both on a state level and then also a local level. Um, and about a year ago, I joined Metro Home Base as the director and have been here since. Um, so it sounds like both of you are kind of working where you were intended to be working, given just sort of how your careers have developed over time. That's kind of awesome. Um, you know, since our show is um, really all about leadership, uh, one of the things that um, Jenny and I like to do is we always like to ask this question. Um, tell us about someone that you see as a best example of a high-impact leader. Again, another way to let our audience kind of know who you are, because I think that helps them then understand the context of the conversation we're going to be having coming up. So who would you say, just off the top of your head, is the best example of a high-impact leader? Could be someone famous or not, whoever. Sure. Um, this is Joni again. I would say for me, uh, one of the first people that came to mind, um, and especially being here in Omaha, would be Warren Buffett. Um, I definitely think that, you know, obviously he's seen as a leader from a business and an investing perspective, but also just in general, his approach um, has uh, always been, um, you know, one of being direct and being strategic, and then also being really forthcoming with the entire community, business community, to say um, that there is a social responsibility for individuals who've been um, successful and who have um, been able to make an impact on the business side to then look to see what their impact can be um, from um, from a social change and from a philanthropic perspective. So, um, as I was sort of thinking about that, obviously being here in Omaha, I think probably he'd be the best example that I can think of. Oh, that's great. How about you, Rachel? Um, and I know Joni's going to laugh just because based on how I operate. For me, it's my Angelo. And I say that just because um, for me, she's the example of how to be a leader that's open and authentic and to give voice to those that don't usually have a voice. Um, and I always just love her poise and how she's always pushing herself to be very authentic and to not be a victim. And I think that's something that as we go through community organizing, as we go through systems change, it's very difficult to hold on to that authenticity and to realize what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it. Yeah, that's a very good point, Rachel. Um, and I think you'll have some good examples about that as we talk about this particular, um, your particular experience getting Metro Home Base started. Yes. So, and maybe we can dive into that now. So, but I'm thinking to help uh, everyone better understand the story you're about to tell, and how you've been working to to um, sort of lead change or manage change that has been manda mandated. In other words, this wasn't anybody's idea necessarily here in our community. Um, it, it was really asked of us as a requirement of federal funding. So maybe it would be helpful just to talk about that and about what our continuum of care is and how that's been working, just some of that context so that as we continue this discussion, it will make sense. Certainly. Um, uh, really, probably starting in uh, the early 90s, um, HUD and through the federal government um, established um, what were the uh, McKinney-Vento Homeless Service Programs. And um, part of that is, um, was a process by which um, HUD said out to communities um, that, and especially from a homeless service perspective, that there should be a continuum of care. There should be a group of um, organizers that pull together homeless service providers, homeless housing providers, um, mainstream resource providers 
across the community to um, come together, regularly meet, regularly um, collaborate and partner, not just in the sense of saying that you collaborate and partner, but actually have some skin in the game and um, and sending referrals back and forth and sharing resources and um, of that nature. And um, uh, very much since the beginning of Continuum of Cares, um, as I had indicated in the 90s, um, they operated and were funded through what HUD called a supportive housing program and through the continuum of care competition processes. Um, in uh, 2009, uh, Congress passed the HEARTH Act, the Homeless Emergency and Rapid Transition to Housing Act, and um, that act codified into law the continuum of care process. And so in doing that, um, Congress said to HUD um, that you've got to take and um, uh, put what previously was um, regulated in competitions and via federal notices, but actually have a set of regulations that govern this continuum of care process and what it is that you do. And um, uh, in doing that, HUD issued um, last uh, July in 2012 a um, notice um, called the Continuum of Care Interim Rule. And in that interim rule, HUD utilized and looked back at what are some of the best practices that have happened through the continuum of cares already operating for many, many years across the communities, and um, how can we best utilize and um, encourage um, everyone across the nation who's funded through the continuum of care process to, to implement some of those best practices. One of those is coordinated access. And um, there's still a lot of things that are unknown and not 100% identified in how to proceed with coordinated access, but um, uh, what we do know about that is that communities that welcome dollars from uh, the federal government and then also um, states and um, uh, local entitlement communities that welcome those federal dollars and disperse them locally um, have to participate in a coordinated access system. And that coordinated access system should create processes that are standardized and common to intake, assess, and provide referrals for services and housing for those who are either currently homeless or at imminent risk. And so that really set the stage for all communities across the nation to develop coordinated access programs. Um, and so that's sort of what led us in our community to say, um, uh, well, this is something HUD's been talking about and showcasing as a best practice, but now it's something that's going to be required if we want to continue to welcome these dollars into our community. So that's how we, we got to this thing called coordinated access. And so just in case anybody out there isn't familiar with this realm of the world, HUD is referring to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, who at the federal level is responsible for housing and dealing with issues like homelessness, correct? Absolutely, definitely. HUD has been um, the primary uh, federal agency for um, dealing with specifically housing emphasis on um, uh, addressing homelessness and addressing veteran homelessness um, uh, through um, housing programs. Certainly, they're very, you know, I think most people are familiar with, you know, Section 8 and those things that are governed by HUD and Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae and, and those types of things. But specifically, we're talking about homeless service programs and some, um, uh, or homeless programs to provide housing and some supportive services along with that. And so, um, Rachel, I have a quick question for you. Before we, um, we have probably a couple of minutes before we take our first break. I'm just wondering, so before central access became part of the environment here, uh, and I know you're still in the pilot phase, what was it like for somebody experiencing a house, housing crisis? I think it might be helpful for people to understand, well, this was the situation before we started, and this is sort of, when we get to the end of the story, this is where we are now. So, 
um, Metro Home Base hasn't started. What did people do when they were experiencing a housing crisis in our community? Um, typically, when a person is experiencing a housing crisis prior to coordinated access, um, they would have to still go from um, shelter to shelter on their own. They would have to navigate through a very convoluted system on their own. Um, in many ways, our shelters do um, have very great relationships and do talk to each other, and so that we've really tried to capitalize on. Um, but for a person that is in a crisis mode that is trying to find either uh, a place to stay or even funding, it can be very difficult and kind of almost re-traumatize them even more into the process. And so um, we're trying, what Coordinate Access does is take that ownership off of the client and to actually say, it is our responsibility to help you navigate this system that is very disjointed and very difficult to navigate. So let us help you figure out what is the best fit for you. Um, so I, I hope I, that. Yeah, and I, and I know I was just going to say that I know um, I don't know why it is, but in um, our central office building here, I sometimes when people call our central intake number, if all of the central intake operators are busy, it will roll over to my phone, so I'll get the call. And um, I want to say it hasn't happened for a while, but before central access got started, I would bet maybe once a month. I would get a call from somebody in the community who was just calling. They didn't know who they were to even ask for, but they were experiencing um, some sort of a crisis related to housing. And generally speaking, the people that I talked to, it was more about needing money to be able to pay the rent because they got behind because of some situation or another or utilities and wanting to, you know, not even knowing who to call. And so, Jenny, I was going to ask you if you've had that experience, but I'm just getting the sign that it's time to take a break. So maybe when we get back, we can finish up that thought, and then we can turn to um, talking about um, the process of how, um, Joni, you and Rachel um, began creating this coordinated access system. So uh, please stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more on Leadership Matters, Informing Leaders, Inspiring Solutions. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leadership Matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact InnoVisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. G. Her email address is drg at innovisions.org. Innovisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. Health costs companies a lot more than just benefits, premiums, and health plans. Think about the underlying cost with not having healthy employees in the program investing in the future. Creating Wealth Through Health, host Susan Doherty will discuss employee wellness programs, how staying healthy affects the bottom line, and how to get your team engaged in better health as a way of life. Tune in every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl G., Jenny Frumer, John Janetta, and Linda Schub. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to drg at innovations.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. Welcome back. If you're just joining the show, Jenny Frumer, my co-host, and I have been having a very interesting conversation about leading a mandated change initiative with Joni Poor, who's the Director of Homeless Services at Heartland Family Service, and Rachel Olive, who's the Director of Metro Home Base in Omaha, Nebraska. And before we went to the break, I had asked um, Jenny if she had the, the same experience I've had with people calling up her agency asking for help because they're in a crisis and have absolutely nowhere to turn. So, Jenny, um, share some of your thoughts and experiences about that. Certainly. Um, no one's really proud of this, but Florida ranks 50th in so many ways um, in terms of uh, taking care of its most, most vulnerable population, which are generally children and older adults and the disabled. We do get a fair amount of calls, and we also are seasonal because we're out of the snow belt here in southeast Florida. And so what tends to happen is during the winter months, our numbers of callers for um, housing concerns or issues as well as just generally those supportive uh, services really increase. And those, that's generally during the winter months. But it is, you know, a problem everywhere. And uh, the challenge that we have here in Southeast Florida is that there is no public system to speak of. And so what you might find in some other states almost doesn't exist here, and so it's a real challenge trying to coordinate any kind of homeless or, you know, homeless crisis care for somebody. And it puts all that responsibility on the person who's already in a crisis and probably Absolutely. isn't thinking they're most critically in even able to problem solve at all because they're just so stressed out about just getting Absolutely. those basic needs. And, and, you know, I think individuals have, a hard, have enough of a hard time, but then you add families into the mix with children, it's just horrendous. Yeah. So that's, I think, what sort of led um, our legislators and HUD to requiring a sort of coordinated access system to take that pressure off people needing help and to provide a better, uh, make better use of our limited resources and provide a better support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know during the break, Jenny, you had a really great question yeah. about then well, how we got started here, so maybe we should turn to that now. Yeah, well, something that was said earlier about how um, you know, where people had, quote, the skin in the game or the dog in the fight and how we were going to bring everyone together to do this. And it's somewhat mandated. So I had got to ask the question, like, take me back to that first meeting and describe it to me. What was that like? People sitting at a table, I have to be here. Certainly, I think um, uh, you know one of the things that we were that we had going for us is that we've had a very involved community of um, providers and um, whether that be shelter, supportive services, or housing providers and folks who've really been engaged in understanding what um, uh, are the best practices and what are the things that are being recommended. So we weren't in our community entirely blindsided um, by this this mandate and this requirement. Um, but certainly once that, that requirement came down, um, the, the initial meetings, I, I think we had a, a, a little bit of everything, a little bit of, of um, across the board response to that. We certainly had some folks who really felt like 
you know, we kind of already do this. We have a great network and a great conversation with a number of different providers already, and we already talk if, you know, we're not sure what to do with the client. So how is what they're talking to us, and how is what HUD, Housing and Urban Development, saying we need to do different from that? So that was one of the responses that we had. We had some people saying, um, you know, absolutely, these are these clients are getting lost in our system, and we need to we, – we ourselves have trouble keeping up with what the current services are and what all of the eligibility requirements are for those services. So we definitely need to, um, you know, figure out how to make it easier for those, for our, um, our neediest of the needy to access and to get through. And I think still yet we had some folks who felt um, like there were still a lot of questions. Um, you know, as with any new initiative, there's not a lot of guidance. Um, and so we, and purposefully, I think HUD and others have given communities the um, freedom to say, um, to not mandate a really rigid system, but leave some um, room for communities to be responsive to what they experience in their particular um, metropolitan area. So um, some people were left with a lot of questions of exactly what does participate mean, exactly what level do I need to be at, and we're still pending a lot of those things and still pending and fully understanding that. But um, in general, I think those those initial first meetings were definitely, um, you know, a little bit across the board of people wanting to be as responsive as possible um, and um, at the same time, you know, trying to figure out how this is different from what we do now at the same time as not fully understanding what exactly was being asked. I, I you painted a, an, an interesting picture because I think uh, one of the challenges of leadership is, of course, when things are mandated and there's the guidance and this is how you do it and here's the manual, um, it actually can be helpful, but on the other hand, it doesn't always give, it, it doesn't always give room for uh, leadership to kind of develop where there might be some shifts in, um, and I use the word very loosely, in kind of power of who's now going to do what and sure. how different that would be. Sure. And, what, and, and then also, because we're talking about, at the end of the day, funding, what the sticker price is going to look like. Exactly, exactly. I think there's lots of questions there about if there's a common process or practice or organization, however that looks, that I receive my referrals through, that's a lot of trust and that's mm-hmm. a lot of understanding, whereas previously I knew I did a good job because I oversaw all of the things and all of the um, determinations that, that were necessary, and so I could stand behind and say, I know what we do is good and I know what we do makes a difference. Now I'm going to share in the with the community all of my eligibility and all of um, the opportunities that may exist and so how do I know that it's that those people that I care really deeply about and care that they get served really well are still served well mm-hmm. and um, and how do we support this when I still have to pay for and cover my bottom line too mm-hmm. um, you know what's what's the return on the investment that happens there and I think mm-hmm. a lot of it went back to people are afraid that they're going to lose their autonomy. They are known in the community for what they do, what they provide. And for a lot of people, that was scary because it means that now their identity had shifted away from them just being the emergency shelter or the housing provider. It went into a group of, of a pot of people that now we are the continuum of care. We are a coordinated access system. No longer do we stand alone. 
I'm fascinated by that process, and I know it's, it's early yet, and and you're all kind of trying to figure out how to do this, but I, I think there's so much to learn from this. Um, well, and I think another interesting point that I think would be uh, worthwhile to spend some time on, um, Joan and Rachel, is to talk about how it is that Heartland Family Service ended up in the role of helping to create Metro Home Base. Definitely. Sure. Um, and um, so when this, uh, actually our continuum um, sort of uh, uh, preemptively took some steps um, understanding that it was likely that the, that um, coordinated access would be something that's required um, and really valued it at a continuum level to say this, regardless of whether or not it's required at this point, this is something that would be good for the clients that we serve. And so they issued in November of 2011 an RFQ out to our community and um, encouraged um, individual organizations, organizations in partnership to apply for and respond to this RFQ and really to um, uh, talk about what what their experience was in leading systems change, what their experience was in program management and program development and um, in fundraising because obviously there, if there's a cost to this process and how, and how to make that happen. And so um, our organization, along with a number of others, submitted um, uh, a response to that RFP, RFQ, and um, through a community process that was led by our continuum with um, uh, a uh, group of um, stakeholders, some of which are funders, some work, you know, city and um, uh, local leaders, uh, some other members of uh, nonprofit leaders that um, were um, that didn't have, you know, a horse in the race uh, with the, with a response to the RFQ, um, reviewed that and. Um, uh, made a determination to uh, select Heartland Family Service, and we have a partner in this process that we call Metro Home Base, um, which is Together, who's another nonprofit organization here in the metro area. And so how do you think, I mean, looking back now, did, did having a competition to select the coordinating partners, facilitating partners, help once it came to implementation or hinder implementation, would you think? You know, I think in some ways there, it, there was some hindrance as far, as far as obviously the, the the people who responded were people who were already invested and involved in homeless services and homeless housing provi- provision in our community. And so um, the individuals that were, you know, the organizations that were not selected still participate um, to this day in the process and in the, how that happens. And so I think there's some, you know, concerns about, um, you know, a part of the RSQ process was to um, – postulate to hypothesize this is what our system might look like um, that isn't either one of um, uh, or any of the uh, responses isn't how the system looks today because there were, once the determination was actually made, there was a process by which we went through to create the model. But I think, um, you know, when you are asked to potentially say this is what I think a system should look like and then maybe the system doesn't end up looking exactly like that, maybe there's questions, maybe there's feelings like is there a better way to do this. Um, so I think in some ways it's it's hindered a bit. Um, you know, in other ways I think it's good for organizations to think about what it is they do well and to look out to others to partner maybe with organizations that they haven't officially partnered with and to build those relationships. And so I think those opportunities are things that wouldn't have happened necessarily without the, the competition per se. But um, 
uh, moving forward after that point certainly has, has created some, uh, not obstacles, but I think just some, some building blocks that we had to work from. And then um, we're probably going to be going to a break here pretty soon, but um, in the short time we have before then, how then did you begin to approach once you were awarded the RFQ and, okay, now you've got the job, no money to do it, um, how, right. did you, how did you begin the process of, or what was the process you used to get input from all these different stakeholders, some sure. of whom maybe were excited about the idea and supported others who were maybe neutral and others who were just thinking, what a waste of time, this isn't something I think we should be doing at all. Exactly. Well, in, in order to develop our model, we really looked at a number of different facets. Um, we looked at research. What are other communities who are successful in doing this across the country doing? Um, we had some one-on-one -on -one meetings, especially with people who were really closely invested to it and people who were strongly opposed to it to talk about those, those feelings and what's behind that. And then what we did primarily, though, is we had, we went through a process of compression planning where we had a series of questions that we asked to really dig in deep to say, you know, what, what would a well-functioning system look like? What shouldn't be included? What absolutely should be there? What are the resources that need to take place? And, what, and, and when it's all said and done, what does it look and feel like? And so we had about 10 of those meetings over the course of several months with various different groups in the community to say, to gather that feedback and gather that input. Um, and then certainly probably one of the primary things we said too when we were awarded this initially without funding and um, uh, was let's secure and identify funding and I can talk a little bit more about that process if you'd like and let's get somebody in to lead the ship and that's where Rachel comes in. Great. Um, so when we, maybe when we get back from the break we can kind of pick up from there So because um, I think it would be really interesting to hear how then you – built up those supports and took all that input and actually coalesced it into the pilot that you're now operating. So we're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll talk about how Metro Home Base was implemented and any challenges that have emerged uh, during the, uh, this phase of a very complicated change initiative. So please stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more on Leadership Matters, Informing Leaders, Inspiring Solutions. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leadership Matters is brought to you by InnoVisions. Need to improve leadership, staff, or organization performance? Contact InnoVisions today for quality, effective, and affordable leadership, staff, and organization development training, coaching, and consulting services. Call 858-244-8264. That's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. G. Her email address is drg at InnoVisions.org. InnoVisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. 
Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl G., Jenny Frumer, John Janetta, and Linda Schub. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to drg at innovations.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. Thank you. Welcome back. Uh, bringing you greetings from Heartland Family Service in Omaha, Nebraska and Council Bluffs, Iowa, and from Albert Jewish Family and Children's Services in West Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, joining me and co-hosting the show today is Jenny Frumer. And with us, we have Joni Poor, Director of Homeless Services at Heartland Family Service, and Rachel Olive, who's the Director of Metro Home Base in Omaha, Nebraska. So while we're on the break, uh, Jenny, you asked a great question about the compression planning process. So maybe we should start with that, and then, and then we can transition into talking about how... Um, how you were able, Joni and Rachel, to secure funding and eventually pilot the, pro- the project. Thank you, John. Um, I was really interested in the compression questions because you spoke about that kind of quickly, and and I'm sure that while it was a process that was very meaningful, um, that you don't think about necessarily much now, I think for those of us who are trying to do these kinds of coalitions, um, around coordinated care, whatever kind of coordinated care it may be. Could you talk a little bit more about what that process was like? Um, to, because I, I, I have a feeling that it really helped coalesce a lot of people as stakeholders. Certainly. Um, uh, so the compression planning process with that, um, or how we landed on compression planning, was that we had a lot of groups, a lot of different stakeholders, uh, prevention, homeless prevention providers, emergency shelter providers, housing providers, um, corrections, um, and, uh, there's, and then probably you know, a list equally as long of, of other stakeholders and other groups that we wanted to talk with. And um, how, did, how could we utilize everyone's valuable time in about an hour to get the most feedback possible. And so what we um, utilized was this compression planning process and um, really how we framed that and how we uh, uh, started was um, making sure that everyone in those meetings understood why we were there, that we were there to create the central access system, that we wanted to identify each particular groups, top three to five priorities related to coordinated access. Um, one of the things that we felt was important was to identify our non-purpose, which was we weren't there to debate whether or not that system would be created. Our job and what we were tasked was to create the system. Um, certainly there were uh, folks who wanted to have the further discussion about whether or not it needed to even happen, but that really wasn't why we were meeting that day. Um, and then, as we've already talked about on the show today, um, there's a lot of background and um, a lot of uh, basis for how we got to that point, to the compression planning meetings and to building a coordinated access system. So we wanted to make sure that everybody was on the same page and talking about what are some guiding principles that our community had already developed, how had HUD, Housing and Urban Development, and the HEARTH Act led us to this point. Um, um, and then we got into the very specific questions. Um, the questions that we asked were um, learning about what were some of the biggest fears that, that mm. people had. How do we address mm. those? 
Um, what would be the elements of a well-designed system? Um, what opportunities would this bring? A lot of folks who were really fearful or really concerned about this system and what it would do, um, this helped for them to think a little bit differently about that and talk about how could this help your organization. Some organizations, prevention folks particularly, maybe received anywhere between 500 and 1,000 phone calls a month and one person can't possibly process those. So could this coordinated system take that pressure off? Um, so really talk about those opportunities. Um, how did they want to be involved? Uh, if there's something particular that they wanted to do and to be involved, we wanted to capture that and make sure that we were true and honored that. Um, and then how did they want to be communicated with? We're all busy people. There's lots and lots of meetings. Email sometimes can be overwhelming. So what was the best methodology mm-hmm. for doing that? Um, and so that was really the, the process of compression planning for us. Thank you. I really appreciate you walking me and probably our listeners through that. Thank you. Certainly. So, you know, eventually you gathered all that data. You created, actually you created a couple of different models as as options, correct? And then allowed correct. people to give some feedback. And then yep. how did you actually arrive then at your final model that you initially implemented? Sure. So the process that we had gone through was um, from compression planning, we took back and and formed all the feedback and all those notes into a couple of different models. And then we had a community forum where we uh, presented those options and and, um, said, you know, here's where consensus exists um, uh, across our community and here's where consensus does not exist. So here's a couple of options um, and really asked for the providers to provide a vote, a um, more of a clear guidance on, um, you know, if thing, if about half the people said that they wanted one door for everyone to enter through and about half the people said they wanted common access across the community, how could those two things happen or which one of them needed to happen? Um, uh, it, so that was our that was our process of taking taking that and saying okay back to the community here's the forum after we received that feedback from those individuals and organizations across the community then um, that the the determined the finalized model was posted out on on our website and um, a summary and narrative about how things would work how intake and assessment and referral processes would work and then asked for uh, feedback and left a feedback a comment period for um, a number of days and then um, uh, an opportunity for people to ask questions and then for every single one of those questions to be responded to in writing, which we did as well. Um, There's a lot of things we learned and I think coming up in the program we can talk a little bit more about that particular process and if, um, if, you know, my time machine would let me go back and do it a little bit differently, what we would do a little bit differently, Um, but that's the process we initially undertook. What would you do differently? I know we want to get to Rachel, but I'm sorry, I'm curious. Sure. Um, You know, um, what... So once we piloted and once we got things going um, and then went through a process of evaluation, one of the things we really learned was that people felt like part of the system was really imposed upon them as opposed to organically decided upon as a community. And um, I think we in our process did that to ourselves to some extent Mm -hmm. in that we met with these individuals through the compression planning. We took back their feed, we took their feedback and we molded the model a little bit and we said, based on what you've said, this is what we understand. And then we took that back and said, okay, here's where the questions still exist. 
really, I think there was opportunity for us to take back that feedback and just summarize it and present it as it was, and then together mold up that initial draft Mm -hmm. instead of us molding that up and presenting it back for further clarification. Mm -hmm. I think that that, um, you really, in a process like this, you can't undervalue um, the community process, the com- you know, everyone in the same room talking together and sorting out the complicated details. Mm-hmm. Because some things were, were put in um, because, you know, a shelter group said, we don't have time for this, but a housing group said, we absolutely need this information. It's important that they sat in a room together and talked to each other so they'd understand that. Because mm-hmm. when the model came out, when we didn't provide that opportunity for them to communicate, they just saw it as something that was imposed that they, that, you know, this isn't what we said. This isn't how we thought it should go. Well, and plus, Joni, wasn't it such that the way that all these people would come to these meetings and give their input, but there was really no sort of designation as to who was representing what per se, unless a particular meeting only included specific people. But as we, brought all that data together. It wasn't weighted in any way. And so, you know, if you had 80% of people who were maybe more prevention and 20% who were shelter, and if that 20% of shelter were saying something, but it wasn't, it, and they were saying it loudly, but it wasn't filtering up through all the other noise of the other 80%, you, you was, it was hard to realize how important that particular point was for that particular group of stakeholders. And to not include it was totally shutting them out of, of what they were hoping to see happen. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that um, uh, that having having it all said in the same room, um, you know, when it came to a referral process for housing, for example, and shelters saying, you know, these, this many questions is way too much. We can't possibly fill this out. And housing providers saying, well, here's the basic things that we absolutely need to have. And the two of them hearing from one another and mutually deciding what they can, what they can part with and what they absolutely need was critical to the success of the process. With the when we initially just presented it to them without them having the discussion together, it was it was out of context. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that I mean we can look back and say that we would change that, but in many ways I think that we talk about in community organizing sometimes there needs to be that crisis moment. Um, and so I think for people when we implemented and we did that, um, that allowed them to see, oh my gosh, this is happening. This is going to affect me. And so that's when people were really ready to sit down at the table and have the hard discussions about what are they willing to give up, what are their non-negotiables, what are our values as a system. And I don't know that that would have happened at the beginning as much as it has happened throughout the last five months. Absolutely. And do you think, you know, when you talk about stages of group formation, in our part of the world where Midwest nice is such an important cultural characteristic, it can be hard to really authentically get to the storming phase. We want to just skip right through it. And um, do you think some of that was at play here too? Like some people maybe weren't being as uh, candid as maybe they needed to be initially because of that? I agree completely. Um, uh, We had talked with someone along the way who said, you know, sometimes you just have to cause the chaos. And certainly I don't think it was our intention to cause any chaos, but starting the pilot somewhere caused everyone to get involved, pay attention, and realize what skin they had in the game and how they wanted that, um, that the, how to be represented and how to be involved. And it did cause people to become more involved and pay more attention at the right level. There was a lot of front-end staff who had been sort of delegated to participate, but then, you know, directors who really felt like this toll on our organization in this way can't work. And so it really meant that, you know, at all levels, 
people had to decide how and who was going to be involved. So um, how, how has the pilot phase gone then? I mean, you, how did you get that going and how, what's, the process, what's the progress of that been? You know, we launched um, March 13th of this past year, and um, initially when we started, we had a lot of technical difficulties that existed, and just not a full grasp of the amount of prevention calls that we were going to receive, or the level of acuity that was necessary to help these people and get these people to the right place. Um, So because of that, we were met with just a few barriers and a few issues that we had to work through. from a pilot phase, I think that it was normal. It was a normal phase to go through. Um, but I think what's more important about the pilot phase is that we really began to see people within the community, within the continuum of care, step up and actually um, give their voice, as we've continued to say, put some skin in the game and say, this isn't going to work for my agency. We need to figure out what does work. We need to figure out what this is going to look like. If this is something that we have to have in our community, we need to take a step back and actually sit down and have some hard discussions. So much of the pilot right now is almost a holding period for the next pilot to exist and to start. Um, Rachel, when we get, we're going to take a short break, and when we get back, maybe we can talk about sort of what's coming next. And um, we talked a little bit about, you know, sort of what you've learned, what you do over again, but maybe a little bit of what leadership skills maybe you have you have developed or refined because of this opportunity, shall we say. So we'll take a break, and when we return, uh, we'll talk about those things and plus anything else we can squeeze in in the remaining few minutes. So please stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more on Leadership Matters, Informing Leaders, Inspiring Solutions. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network leadership matters is brought to you by innovisions need to improve leadership staff or organization performance contact innovisions today for quality effective and affordable leadership staff and organization development training coaching and consulting services call 858-244-8264 that's 858-244-8264. Or send an email to Dr. G. Her email address is drg at innovisions.org. Innovisions is a social enterprise of the Neighborhood House Association of San Diego, California. Funds raised go to support the Neighborhood House Association's mission, developing children, families, and future leaders of our communities through empowerment, education, and wellness. Our workplace is dynamically changing. How do you stay ahead of the curve with respect to learning and training? Tune in every week to The Future of Workforce Learning and Development with host Pamela Robinson. You'll learn about real-world strategies, solutions, and resources that will showcase these changes and keep you ready for what's next. The Future of Workforce Learning and Development is heard live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl G., Jenny Frumer, John Janetta, and Linda Schub. 
If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to drg at innovations.org. Now, back to Leadership Matters. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, um, you're in for a treat, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to the first part of this show. But my co-host today, Jenny, and I have been having a fascinating conversation about leadership in the context of mandated change. Our special guests are Joni Poor, Director of Homeless Services at Heartland Family Service, and Rachel Olive, Director of Metro Home Base, a coordinated access system for people who are experiencing a housing crisis. So, um, Joni and Rachel... We were talking about um, how you kind of moved into the pilot phase, and now you're really kind of gearing up for a second pilot phase because you've been taking what you've been learning from your evaluation process, processes, gathering more feedback from the stakeholders, and modifying the whole model. So what's, what's going to happen next? Where do you see this going? So when we began all of this, um, we started with a very centralized model that um, really looked at closing all the side doors into the homeless services system. Um, what we found through the implementation of the pilot is that that is not the philosophy that our community holds to. Our community holds to no wrong door um, and having everyone kind of lead that process. And so um, right now what we're doing is we're beginning to have the hard conversations about what does no wrong door look like? How do we really create a model around no wrong door? Um, and to make sure that the individuals that walk through either a shelter, a prevention agency, or a housing services place, that they're receiving the same exact care that they would anywhere else, and that they're getting triaged and assessed and referred to the place that best fits them, not based on programmatic or the agency that they end up at, but actually for the whole system across our coordinated access. And in that kind of a system or any kind of a coordinated access system, it seems like just having the system, at least initially, would create a certain level of stress in its most successful implementation only because we know that there aren't enough resources to meet the needs. So in the old system, someone calls me for help, I could say, oh, well, just call together at blah, 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 blah. They have funding that helps people who need to be able to pay back, get caught up on rent or um, you know, pay the utilities so they don't become homeless. And then I can hang up feeling like I help somebody having no idea whether or not they ever were able to make the call, whether when they did make the call, they connected with somebody, and if they did make the call, whether there was even money left that month to be able to help them. But now I'm a little bit more on the hook, aren't I? Exactly. Um, What is expected now is that um, when you make a referral for an individual that ends up at your agency, that you're making a referral to an actual bed or dollars or to some form of a service. Um, that is something that has been a huge success with the beginning part of this pilot is that our community really recognized that that is something that they really like. They really like knowing that when they send someone somewhere that there are actually dollars or beds or services available for that individual. Um, And as a community, what we're recognizing, realizing, is there really isn't enough resources in our community. So we need to come together and really create long-term goals and benchmarks to really begin to bridge those gaps and to get over those barriers that exist. And so what happens now then when somebody does call and there aren't any beds and there aren't any resources, no referral is made, or what do we, what do we tell these people in crisis? Um, so currently what happens if there are no beds? Um, we have within Metro Home Base what we call outreach street outreach services. And so we have an individual who goes out and meets with those people 
that um, aren't in a shelter um, and are actually street dependent. And she works with them to get them assessed and get them connected to housing um, as quickly as possible so they get off the streets. For financial services, what we're looking at is creating, um, what we have created is a navigation service, which is basically case management for people who are going through a housing crisis that um, we don't have any financial money to give out to anybody or financial assistance. And so much of it is really working with them on what um, bills to pay, what does um, budgeting look like, different things like that. So really being there to walk with them through that process and connecting them to other mainstream resources that might exist out there. So you can't really help them with the immediate crisis of getting that bill paid, but you can um, do provide something to help them connect with mainstream resources that might be able to help in other ways and maybe eventually get them that immediate financial assistance when resources become available. Yeah, and in some cases we can do some landlord mediation, we can do some roommate mediation and really begin to work with them. Um, we do have some flexible um, fund, or prevention agencies out there who don't really help on um, the front end of when we are doing actual referrals and people, they like to help with those oddball requests. And so sometimes we're able to help with financial assistance, but a lot of it is just really connecting people to the resources that exist because sometimes you just don't know what could help a person until you actually sit down with them and talk with them. Sure. So um, as you've gone through this process, how has your leadership developed or changed? I mean, because again, I always like to come back to that since this is a show is called Leadership Matters. We're all about leadership. What have you learned about leadership because of your successes and your challenges and the things maybe that haven't gone so well? Because you've been really candid about the fact that it hasn't all gone well and it hasn't been easy. Um. I think in many ways I've been um, a facilitator in my life and a diplomat, and that's just that's the role that I've always taken as a leader um, and really always tried to find middle ground, and I think that's helped me. But much of what I've learned is that um, it's okay to go with your gut reaction to really be able to speak up if you feel very strongly about something and to really push people to think beyond what is actually currently happening within a system. How do we take it to the next level? How do we actually create that change? And, and Joni, how about you? Uh, you know, I think the, the probably the biggest opportunity for growth for me was um, uh, being able to um, be patient through the systems change, be uh, responsive, and um, and really flexible, just to open up to where are the opportunities for um, uh, all of us um, in our as leaders of this um, initiative, this new process. Where can we be flexible, and what can we be open to? And um, and even though some of the feedback that's provided is provided in a way that's just negative feedback and not always constructive with a possible solution attached to it, sometimes you just have to sit and you have to listen through that process and you have to um, guide individuals too. Um, so, you know, you, you feel that XYZ doesn't need to happen. How do you think it would look if it was successful? What do you think that would feel like for the clients? And, um, and see people through that process. I think those opportunities to have those tough situations and walk people through has really presented a great opportunity for me to grow um, and to guide our team um, through that. Great. Thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. Um, Jenny, I, I know we're closing in on our time. Is there any, any last comments you want to make or questions you want to ask? Um, I don't think there's time for questions, but I just want to really comment how much I've enjoyed the show and learning from you. And as it relates to leadership, I think that probably, you know, other than just dealing with crises day after day, 
that having this type of initiative to focus on and um, really being able, as you have, demonstrated leadership skills, I can't help thinking about, you know, parallel process to what you've done with the group of professionals that we try and do, say, with civic engagement. I mean, I think there are so many things that we could talk about, and I really want to thank you. This has been a great show. Thank um, you all Rachel, for having us. Uh, Rachel, before we close, and we're going to do that here quickly, um, where can our listeners find out more about Metro Home Base in case they'd like more of the details or even your contact information? Um, you can go to Metro Home Base, all one word, all lowercase, dot org, um, and that will give you um, a place where you can also submit questions, but then also um, has my contact information as well if you have any other questions. Fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, Joni and Rachel, for being with us today. Thank you as well, my fabulous co-host, Jenny Frumer, and thank you to all of our listening audience for tuning in. Please join us every Wednesday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for Leadership Matters, Informing Leaders, Inspiring Solutions. Thank you again for tuning in. Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl G., Jenny Frumer, John Janetta, and Linda Schub is broadcast live every Wednesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a wonderful week and make your leadership matter. Matter.